dial star 611 for assistance as your cellular phone is not authorized for use at this time. Pour de l'assistance, veuillez composer étoile 611. Vous n'avez pas le... Hello, podcast listener. Everything around you that you call life was made by people that were no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can build your own things that other people can use. The App Guy Podcasts, straight from your host, Paul the App Guy, sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. And now, Paul the App Guy. Welcome to the App Guy Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kemp, and I'm thrilled today to have a terrific guest that's joined the show. His name is Professor Drew Boyd, and he is the co-author of Inside the Box, a proven system of creativity for breakthrough results. And this is a book that's been nominated uh, as Innovation Book of the Year in the UK. So I'm like absolutely doubly thrilled that uh, Drew has been able to join us on this call and talk through his uh, career. Uh, he's a recognized authority, thought leader, and educator, and practitioner in the fields of persuasion and social media. So I know we've got a lot to learn as uh, indie app developers, a lot to learn from Drew, and I'm just thrilled that you could take the time out of your day. I know that you're busy marking papers, Drew, so um, I'm thrilled that you could take the time to join us and share with the audience some insights. I, I would love to, to hear from you about your career, what brought you into the fields of um, technology and, and, and what brought you to write your book. Great. Thanks, Paul. It's nice to be with you today. I, uh, I guess the best way to explain me, even though my title is, uh, is professor um, at the University of Cincinnati, I'm really a corporate practitioner. I spent uh, about 17 years at the healthcare company called Johnson & Johnson. and Before that, I was in the airline industry. and I'm really an industry practitioner uh, turned academic. And I, it was the it was the experiences at uh, at Johnson and Johnson where I really started to embrace more of the the tech side of things, especially as it relates to business and how technology and and now social media you know really help business leaders and business executives stay on top of things and and be not just more productive but more informed. And so. Talk us through then what inspired you to actually write and co-author Inside the Box. Yeah, I'd be happy to. When I was at j and I, I got very fortunate to, just by accident, uh, read about this guy named Jacob Goldenberg. He was a professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And, and Jacob had done some interesting research. He had studied highly innovative products initially to find out what made them different from one another. And what he discovered was just the opposite, that highly innovative products actually have more in common with one another. They tend to conform to patterns. And what we believe is that for thousands of years, innovators have used patterns in their invention, usually without even realizing it. And in doing so, those patterns are now embedded into the products and services you see around you, almost like the DNA of a product. And what Jacob and some of his colleagues did is turn this into a method where you can systematically invent new products and services using these five patterns. And so we call it inside the box. The notion of outside the box is really a myth based on some flawed research. And what we did is decided to write this book, uh, launched in June of this year, that describes the method in, in great detail, these five techniques and how you apply them to let you be more creative. And it's a, 
it's a wonderful uh, experience that I had and now uh, practicing this and teaching it to graduate students at the University of Cincinnati and other uh, schools around the world as well as companies. Well, that's terrific insight and it's actually quite interesting to me to hear that we all talk about outside the boxes and, and that's actually a myth. <laughs> and uh, that's a real wake-up call. I think that'll be a, a, a wake-up call for a lot of the people listening here. Yeah, it. You know, here's the here's the quick reason why. And, and what what uh, the researchers thought is that if you could get your thinking outside into a, this unconstrained space, that you're going to be more creative. And actually, what the research shows, Paul, is that when you tell somebody to think outside the box you have sent their mind on a wild cognitive goose chase into an unconstrained, vastly wide open space that overwhelms the mind. The mind goes through what we call idea anarchy, and it has a difficult time really grabbing onto ideas. Uh, when you constrain the mind in a tightly bounded area inside the box, the mind works harder and smarter and is much more productive than this, this other uh, commonly held approach, you know, it's it's been it's been around for a long time, and people use the phrase all the time when, in fact, it's uh, it's not true. Is it to do with uh, left side thinking and right side thinking of the brain? You, you know, not not really. It's interesting that you make that connection, but there's actually some new research coming out that shows this whole notion of left brain, right brain is, is overblown as well. <laughs> so, so we could just go through all these myths that I've got in my head and we could just like absolutely <laughs> smash them to smithereens. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I joke about it, but it's kind of true that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm 59 years old and I, I kind of laugh about this. The second half of my life is really unlearning all the things I learned in the first half <laughs> so, and, and putting them in new context. So, uh, yeah, that, it's not related to this left brain, right brain thing. It's really what the method does, Paul, is it, it uh, structures your thinking. It regulates your ideation, channels your ideation in a way that your, it's the, the, our method steps you through one step at a time how to produce an idea. And basically what it does is it boosts your creativity no matter where you're starting from on the creativity scale. And that's good news for people because many people don't believe they're creative. They've been told all their life by their friends or their coworkers, even their parents, you know, they're not, they're not creative. And in fact, uh, this method can take you and make you more creative uh, if you use it correctly. So I'm, I'm very cautious now about sharing my beliefs with you, just in case they get blown <laughs> out. But uh, I personally believe that we're in the most creativity-inspired time of a generation, in fact, if not more. There must be something you can talk to on that in regards to all the things that you see around you, um, you know, especially as it relates to apps and iPhones and devices that we use and the connection that we have. Do you believe that we are going through this renaissance of creativity? Here's what, what I think technology is doing for people. The, the method of, uh, that we describe in our book has been around about, about 15 years. And it's, it's our goal to use this basically and replace brainstorming as the dominant way of thinking. Guess, guess what? 50 years of research shows that brainstorming is also not effective. That the, the method that was invented in the 40s by a man named Alex Osborne actually does not work. It actually does more to damage creativity. And I think finally, 
Paul, what's happening is the word is getting out now about brainstorming. People aren't satisfied with it. They're looking for a way now to to improve their creativity. What the what technology has done, and especially on the social side of things, is it's made connections with people and it's allowed people to share their ideas. You look at something like Pinterest, for example. I have a Pinterest site where I have boards for each of these five techniques with examples of products that conform to them. Well, I'm sharing that on a on a global scale. I've got a lot of followers and people, my students and whatnot, contribute to it all the time. So the social phenomena is spreading the word about what's what's interesting and what's what's uh, what's feasible. It inspires other people to take these ideas and um, make make um, analogies to things that they want to to invent and that's never happened before on this scale so in that sense yeah it's very much a different era in terms of creativity and the way uh, creative ideas and methods spread Uh, we've never seen that before and people listening to this are involved in app development they would argue that they need to be creative it's it's a very competitive field now uh, with a lot of app developers getting involved in creating apps. Have you got any suggestions to the people listening with a focus on app development? Any suggestions on on things they could do to help their creativity? Absolutely. We, when I say we, my co-author and I, after we launched the book, we launched a an app that effectively does this method. And it was a great experience for us because we learned a lot about app development and, and the uh, the challenges associated with it. But putting that aside for a minute, just in terms of app development and how to be more creative, there are uh, some key steps you can take right away that will boost your creativity. One thing you can do is, and perhaps the very first thing you should do whenever you start an app, is develop a very detailed and concrete list of constraints around the problem. Now, people hear that and they go, wait a minute, (laughs) hold on, that goes against everything they've learned all their life, that, you know, by putting constraints, you're you're limiting yourself potentially. And just to the point I made before about inside the box, it's those constraints that are going to force you to be more creative. Without constraints, you really don't have an opportunity to be creative. So I encourage app developers to, first thing, sit down and either with their partners or with their client and carefully list out the constraints that will actually force them to be more creative. That's number one. Number two is you, when you tackle a problem like this, uh, we, we counsel people, we coach people to break the, break the issue up into smaller chunks. Chunk down is uh, typically the term that it's called, chunking down the, the big project into much smaller projects and tackle them at a more granular level. By dialing down the granularity of the project, it gives more focus, it gives you a better way to sort of wrap your head around it, right, and understand how you um, uh, tackle that particular piece of it. So on an app, for example, let's say it's something as simple as a search function on an app. Well, believe it or not, you can, if you just focus on that and make that the sort of the center of your, of your attention, you're going to not be as distracted by the other elements of the problem, of the of the functionality of the app, and and give yourself better focus to even make something as simple as a search function uh, more creative. That's number. Well, I mean, well, I mean search- searching has been pretty good for the odd company out there, perhaps Google, 
And so I'm writing these down. These are very, very useful insights, I think, for any app developer to, to step one, develop constraints around the problem. I guess that's where uh, inside the box kind of comes from. And step two, chunking down the big problem into smaller granular, uh, at, at a granular level, so you can tackle those a, a lot easier. Yeah, we, we call it, um, in our training, we call it zooming. Zooming in, zooming out, that's another uh, variation of it. Chunking down or zooming in on one particular world. So if you were to take an app, just pick any app and um, break it into its components, chunk it down into a list of components. Uh, one of those components would be the search function, for example. But then you zoom in on just that particular component and create a new component list of just it. In other words, you chunk down the chunk. <laughs> and by, you know, by dialing down, by zooming down, uh, almost like a magnifying glass, Paul, or if you think of it like uh, the lens on a camera, zooming in on, the, on a subject, you get a completely different perspective and it stimulates a different level of creativity when you do that. Already filled up two pages of A4 here, writing this stuff down. I think it's terrific insights. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who are perhaps struggling with the creativity. And uh, I know from experience that when you take a problem and, uh, as you say, chunk it down into smaller bite-sized pieces, that you can actually get something that is truly innovative. You mentioned that we feel you said that highly innovative products actually do conform to patterns do you think that's happening in the a apple app store for example where we're seeing a lot of this me too products well me too products aren't necessarily uncreative uh what what i would what i would tell you is this is that the the research shows that the the majority of innovative products conform to just five patterns and one way I, I teach people to be more creative is to learn these patterns and learn to spot them. Uh, I call it pattern spotting. And so when you look at a one of the patterns is called attribute dependency. Attribute dependency works like this. It's when one thing changes about a product when something else changes about the product or about something in its environment. Attribute dependency creates a correlation between two attributes of a system. And so you look at a product like transition sunglasses. Those are the sunglasses that get darker when you go outside in a bright light, and then they get lighter again when you come inside. The, the darkness of the lens changes as the brightness of the light changes. And that, that's the, the dependency between the two of them. Well, so if you look at apps, if, or you look at any product, if you look at automobiles, for example, Windshield wipers that speed up or slow down depending on the amount of water that's hitting the windshield is another example of attribute dependency. So I encourage my students to learn the patterns, the underlying engine or uh, the, the, the mechanism of how the pattern works, and then try to spot it because if they, if they build that ability to spot patterns, they're, number one, it's going to help them see what are the really highly innovative apps versus the not-so-innovative apps, I would claim that if an app has these patterns in it, it's going to be more innovative than an app that doesn't have these patterns. And, um, and it also helps build your muscle or build your, uh, your you know, fluidness with using these patterns in your own products and services, including apps. It's almost like you actually wrote this book with app developers in mind because that, again, is 
you know, a terrific example of something that you could do practically as an app developer. You can look through all the different functionalities and the attributes of the, the various apps that people love and try to apply them elsewhere. One quick way that app developers can use the attribute dependency pattern, for example, is list out the variables of the, uh, of the app. The, the variables could be things like the uh, position of information on the screen. It could be the colors of the various parts of the app. It could be the speed or it could be the information. Not components now, we're talking variables, the things that change about the app. And then make a list of the things that change with regard to the user of the app. Age, gender, time of day, uh, location, uh, list all the things, you know, the, the, the 10 or 20 things of variables related to the user, their preferences, their skill levels, their education levels, things like that. And then you, what you do is you, you force a connection where one doesn't exist today. So, for example, the amount of information on the app changes with the level of experience of the user. Hmm, that's a pretty interesting idea, and if a, if a developer can create those correlations where the app changes in response to something that, that, that is changed about the user, they're going to have a more creative app. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a very powerful way to think about boosting the creativity of your, of your apps and your products. This is such interesting uh, material here. How else would you think about the users of apps? You mentioned age. Are there any other categories that you would perhaps put people in into as, as you think about these things? You know, it, uh, in, the, in the digital world, what's interesting is uh, you see smartphones, for example, and there's so much of the attribute de dependency pattern in smartphones. And so one of the clever things that, I, that is starting to happen now is uh, apps are on smartphones are becoming aware of things like geolocation. Uh, they're becoming aware of proximity of other you know, friends in your network, you know, your LinkedIn contacts, for example. There are different apps that do that, like Doppler and things. Um, in a store, when you walk by certain products or you're in certain parts of the store, apps are going to start to change in the types of information they, they feed to you. So what what's also, I think, very clever and exciting is when you think about a, an individual user and their social network, people in their network, you could vary the app depending on who is in their social network. You could vary the app depending on things like other apps that they own. So if there was a way for your, your app to somehow reflect or change or do something based on other apps that the user has on their smartphone, it could be very powerful because when you think about it, if, if you look at any, any two smartphones in the world, they're going to be completely different, right? They're the same two, let's say, iPhone 5s, but yours, Paul, would look totally different than mine in terms of the apps that we have and the information we keep yes. and the, the stuff that we store on it, photos and phone numbers and everything. So when an app can recognize that and interpret based on the apps that I have, the kind of person I am, that's going to imply maybe what I'd like to see on a new app uh, given the, the the preferences I've shown for the apps that I have now, uh, so that's it's sort of, it's sort of reminding me. I was just listening to the uh, founder of Airbnb, which uh, is uh, a, a very successful uh, company in regards to traveling and, and people putting um, their rooms up for uh, rent, you know, or, or 
to, to holidaymakers. But he was saying that um, really apps need to start curating your life, understanding what really drives you as a person and, and, and then curating parts of your life that you, you want create, curated because we're all doing a lot of different things and we just want you know somebody to, to kind of guide us who uh, is an authority in that figure. Is that fair? Yeah, I, and I, I think that's uh, starting to happen when you look at something like Pandora, right? Pandora is basically curating music. It's, it's taking, so you can click on a, uh, a artist like Eric Clapton and it'll give you songs in that same genre or even a particular song of, of uh, Eric Clapton and so that's curation. Um, you look at things for example I look at curation or an app that if, if it were to take an inventory of my my uh, wardrobe if you could go into my closet and this app could look at everything I've got on my my closet and my drawers what would it interpret about feeding me preferences of clothes. I'd love that app. That would be, be pretty amazing, right? Today, I have a shopper at, Nord, at a store called Nordstrom here in the U.S. that does that for me. And, and honestly, professional shoppers come into your closet and look and see what you buy now as an indication of what you might like in the future. So apps that can do that, uh, just as he said, curation, we're seeing that with music, we're seeing that with art, we're seeing that with food, right? Food preferences, uh, and it's it's um, uh, a great source of new app development to look at uh, ways to do that. You must be so excited for the future because I mean, I, already you're coming out with some really terrific ideas for apps. And uh, what 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 is exciting you right now, Drew? What what sort of stuff are you getting involved with and working on that is really exciting you? I think for me, the uh, the the application of uh, systematic creativity methods in you know, in particular domains, right? The, the application of creativity methods in healthcare is a particular focus for me. Number one, I have a number of clients that are in this um, space, pharmaceutical clients and others. And um, But the healthcare environment changes. It's changing a lot in the U.S. It's, there's a, you know, in the U.K., for example, the healthcare environment is one of, um, you know, high... Uh, high prominence, it's on people's minds a lot. And so when you can bring innovation in a systematic way to the healthcare environment, it definitely helps a lot of people. It brings value across many different um, demographics. So that, I get excited about that. But I also like to see creativity in its use with uh, children, especially children with cognitive disorders. We talk a little bit about it in our book. In fact, it's the opening story in our book about the use of a method with a young man that has Down syndrome. And so people with Down syndrome are uh, unfortunate because they're, they're people of high empathy. If you ever meet somebody with Down syndrome, they'll give you a big hug, <laughs> a big smile on their face. But they are relegated to uh, menial tasks like, like uh, bagging groceries or lifting boxes. And what we think, what we believe, is that if they were to learn just maybe one of these creativity methods, it might upgrade their ability to process the world around them and maybe hold better jobs and have a better quality of life. And, and that we'd like to see that. That would make us uh, feel really good if we could make an impact there. Thank you for sharing that because, um, I mean, I was just th- thinking of all these things. Just talking to you, as you say, your, your mind does start to 
explore all the, the different ideas that come out. And I can see now why uh, bringing it full circle back to um, the initial discussion that we had at the start, that you know the need to actually create borders around the idea and constraints because otherwise you can just get carried off. And I actually see this with clients many times. So we've... Uh, it's amazing. We've been talking now uh, for almost 30 minutes, and so uh, it feels like five. And um, I've got so many more questions to uh, ask you. But but before we wrap it up, Drew, I would like to understand what really would you suggest to app developers then and people uh, listening to this uh, this podcast? What's the big uh, advice that you would like to leave the the audience in terms of what they should be doing after listening to this? Well, I think I think the um Probably for app development, what what I what I would say is a, a quick quick way to sort of change what you're doing, and and I think improve what you're doing is re- recognize number one that sources of ideas for apps are not likely to come from what we call the voice of the customer. You know, just going out and asking people what they want for for example is is not likely to be a really good source of that. It comes through observation and this idea of pattern-based or, or analogy-based um, ideas. So, for example, uh, the the idea of analogy transfers, it's looking at something like a, I'm looking right now in my office, I have a banjo in the corner uh, that uh, I, I just love, and I'm looking at this banjo and I'm thinking about innovations on this banjo. That and patterns in, the, in how this banjo is constructed. And I imagine if I were to use the pattern in that banjo and how it's constructed to, to create an app on how people change a tire, right? <laughs> Something completely unrelated. What I would, what I would be more, I'd be more likely to find useful apps that way than uh, by just asking, asking somebody. And I, I was just with my mother here for a, uh, a holiday in the U.S. We have a holiday called Thanksgiving. And my, my mother, God love her, she's 85, and she went shopping to buy a new dress for a dinner that she's going to. And, and I said, Mom, you've got so many clothes in your closet. And she said to me, you know, I, I do, but I, I just want to make sure I don't wear something that uh, is, uh, I've already worn and these people have already seen. And right away it prompted in my mind, you know, it wouldn't be great if there was an app where my mother could take a picture of, of a article of clothing that she wore to a function or a party and who was there and then no not to wear that again with that same kind of people and so i thought i thought i had this great idea for an app and i look it up and there's already like 20 apps that do that <laughs> so yeah but but so observation is is good to a point it's clearly my if I, you'd ask my mother she could never have come up with that kind of app you know she could describe the problem um, and, and so in that sense, maybe customers do have, you know, people do have insights about problems, but I think the really creative, uh, not just problem solving, but the creative idea goes back to this idea of pattern-based innovation, seeing how patterns were used in other inventions and then transferring that pattern into a problem to, to use, and then building the app around the basic mechanism of that same pattern to solve that problem. The banjo is constructed in a certain way and that's going to help you change this tire in a new way and there's an app for that. That would create something quite creative, I'm, I'm pretty certain. <laughs> well, it's, um, before we bring this to a close then, is there anything you feel that we haven't touched upon that's just so compelling that you, you, you have to share with, with us? 
I don't think so, Paul. I think we've we've nailed quite a lot of uh, different topics. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you about these. Uh, no, nothing and burning. And how would people get in touch with you, Drew? I mean, I've, I'm going to put the show notes in the show notes, uh, all the links to uh, the books uh, that we mentioned at the start. And But how could we reach out to you and, and get in touch I'm with you? I'm happy to take emails from people at uh, various email addresses. My university address is drew.boyd at uc.edu. You can also go to my website, InsideTheBoxInnovation.com. That's www.InsideTheBoxInnovation.com. And that describes our book and the method and a lot of other resources, as well as some email contacts and phone contacts there. Well, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. And I would love to have another chat with you, and especially next year uh, when uh, you know all the, taking on board all these ideas and, and perhaps uh, when you've got another version or edition of your book coming out. But, I mean, just the ideas now flowing around my mind is just... Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to sleep I'm tonight, I don't think. Tonight. But, uh, <laughs> Drew, <laughs> Drew I've, really, I've really thoroughly enjoyed this. I know that the audience will appreciate you spending the time out of your day to, to talk to us and share this. Uh, I highly recommend uh, definitely buying that book, and uh, hopefully I will get a chance to speak to you in the near future. Thanks, Paul. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Drew. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode. And if you do have any ideas on who we should interview, please send that email to info at onemob.com. That's info at o n e m o b.com. 